Moses uh, spends 40 years in a palace. Then he spends 40 years in the desert. Then God says, now we're ready to go. So he says, here's the job that I have for you. I want you to go before Pharaoh. I want you to tell him you want the children of Israel out of there. And uh, I want you to lead them out. And Moses, of course, says, uh, they're better guys than me. And God said, yeah, but you're not my guy. They're not my guys. You are. So Moses, God gives him a companion by the name of Aaron to say, Moses, I'm not going to just throw you out there alone. I'm going to give you a helper and his, his older brother, three-year-older brother, three years older than him, Moses, uh, Aaron, ends up going along with him. And so uh, we talked about it last week. They go into Pharaoh and uh, they say, uh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no, and he makes it harder for the children of Israel. When he makes it harder for the children of Israel, they now complain and turn against Moses and Aaron. And you're going to see that play out a lot. And uh, so Moses and Aaron go back, and they say, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh says, I don't know who your God is. And Moses throw, tells Aaron to throw the stick, the, the, the stick down. And, and, um, and I didn't talk about this a lot last week, but that was an incredible symbol of power. Uh, if you look at any of the statues or any of the things in um, Egyptian culture, you'll see a, often a rod. That, that was a, the idea of ruling and of power. And so that became very, very significant. Uh, with regards to that. So uh, he's got the, and I, in fact, I, I got to do this because this will help you, okay? Um, again, it'll help you remember. So this becomes a, a, a symbol. Um, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's got his stick, and Moses has got his stick, and it's kind of like whose stick is more important. And, and so when he throws it down, it becomes a snake, and uh, Janus and Jambres uh, show up, and they're like, well, we can do that, and they throw their sticks down, and Moses' stick eats up, Aaron's stick eats up the other two sticks. So it's kind of like, okay, that must be the guy that's most important. And you're going to see this. God's going to, God's going to show this. Um, I want to start with something because I, I, I think as I'm, try, I'm telling this story, sometimes we miss um, how hard this was. So uh, I pulled some stuff this week that I think uh, to try to... Uh, try to somewhat give you a little bit of an idea. Um, this is actually a picture of Ramses II. It's called a funerary. Um, this is kind of where they would rule from. Okay, this is actually a, the ruins of one. Um, this is, what would happen is this is kind of where he would rule from, and then when he dies, they use this to prepare his body so that people can come and worship him. Because again, pharaohs were considered gods, and so then they would move it to some of the pyramids like you see. And that was their, their last, um, that was where they were preparing themselves to head to the, um, to the other world. Uh, so this is, this is actually one that's in existence right now. Um, let me give you an idea um, of, uh, okay, what's happening here, guys? You guys aren't doing anything, are you? Oh, 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 there we go. Oh, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, there we go. All right. Here's an idea of what it looks like going into it. So let me give you a little bit of an insight. So when Moses, let's just say it, that, that Pharaoh's was similar to this, realistically was probably bigger. Um, but this is an idea that this is what Moses would have walked into. Notice how high the doors are. Okay, the reason for that is in Egyptian culture, um, these were, this was the dwelling place of the God. 
So this is how big their God was. This was the door their God needed to get into his house. Okay? So the idea was, we want you to give an idea of how powerful our God, i.e. Pharaoh, is. So this is what the kind of thing that Moses would have walked into. Um, this is kind of what it may have looked like with the idea of Pharaoh would have been sitting back up in there in the, in the deal. So Moses and Aaron, again, I want you to think about this, how intimidating it is for you to come walking up as a human being into that and then to walk into this. Here is a, this is actually one of the statues. It's one of the largest statues that we know in existence. This statue of, of Ramses, um, the Pharaoh, uh, basically stood 70 feet tall. So let me put that in perspective. This is about, if I remember right, this is like 18 feet. So you take three of these, stack it on top, and add about another 10 feet or so. That's the kind of statues that they had. Because why? They wanted the people to know, I'm big, I'm powerful, and I'm important. This is, by the way, this is carved out of red granite. This is just the, the head that remains. There was an earthquake that it fell over, um, which is kind of cool because God's going, uh, but anyway, uh, so this actually still, but this gives you an idea. Uh, here's a picture actually of, of people in front of it. Huh? That was just the head. Uh, yeah. So, so are you getting the concept? Because I think we lose this when we get into these stories. And I think we lose the idea of what God was asking of, of Moses and Aaron. And I want you to think about it for a second, because how intimidated would you be if God asked you to go and do this? Because that's the reality of the story. When, Mo, when we read, and Moses went before Pharaoh, you know, we're thinking, okay, you know, it's like knocking on the, the door of your boss and going, hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. No, 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 no. No, this is, this, is, this is you and your puny ability walking up and going, whoa, I'm going to do what? And walking in before a guy who considered himself a god who needed a door that size in order to get in, and then you walking up and saying, hey, by the way, this is what you need to do. That's a pretty powerful thing when we talk about it, as, as we look at this whole story thing play out. So with that in mind, as we read it now, it's going to be a little bit different as you go and read the story, hopefully, and you understand it. Here's what it said. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes to the, out to the river. This is the river Nile. We're going to talk a lot about that in a minute. Confront him on the bank of the Nile. So apparently this was a routine for Pharaoh to, to go out, or somehow Moses knew this is where he's going to be. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. So he's got his stick. Okay? And then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. You're not the God that you think you are, and your gods are not the gods that they think they are. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. He says, 
Pharaoh, you need to know you got a shot here. You can change now and let us go. Or I'm going to walk in and I'm going to take my rod, I'm going to take my stick, and I'm going to go like this. And as I do this, it's going to go from water to blood to blood, 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 blood. You got a shot, Pharaoh. You can change now and let us go, or that's what's going to happen. Um, it's interesting, the text goes on. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt. So Moses looks at Aaron and says, Aaron, it's time. And over the streams and the canals and the ponds and the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. What happens is Aaron, and you've got to read this for yourself, Exodus chapter 7, because there's a lot that I'm skipping over and a lot that I'm just going to throw out there real quick. But when he does this, what happens is it all turns to blood. And it says, even the vessels of wood and stone. Here's what that means. So I would just want you to think about the impact of this for a second. Right now, every water source and every bit of water automatically becomes contaminated. What's the rest of your day look like? Every water bottle, every jug of water, every well that you have, every pipe that you have that you get water from, all of a sudden now is contaminated and you can't use it. By the way, this is a pretty hot climate. Question, what are you going to feed your animals? How are you going to water your animals? Question, how are you going to do anything? Because it's all unusable. And the crazy thing is, I don't know how all of this happened, but Moses turns around to Janus, Jan, uh, Janus and Jambres and says, hey, can you guys do that? And they went, yep, boom. So I don't know if it cleared up and then it got bad again. I don't know how all of that worked, but the, uh, the thing is, you're going to see that God allows, sometimes God allows the miracles to be duplicated. Once we get, once we get to about three on, it kind of changes and it, and it doesn't. Um, it, well, at three on it doesn't, and then three on it doesn't affect the Israelites. We'll get to that later. But anyway, so what happens is, this is what, this is what happens, and the fish die. Then you go, okay, that's kind of an odd thing. Why would God do that? Um, here's what you're going to see as we get through this series, and for the next three weeks you're going to see this, as we talk about the plagues. Here was the deal. The, Jew, the, 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 the Egyptians believed that their gods were God. And God had to step in and say, let me explain something to you. There is one God. The Egyptians were polytheistic. They had many gods. In fact, you're going to see that every plague is tied to an Egyptian God, at least one Egyptian God, in some cases more than one. So you go, why the blood? This, let me introduce you to a new a character. This is actually from Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, this is the God, uh, was known as the God Hapai. Uh, I'm going to probably botch all the pronunciations, but you'll just get over it. I'm not Egyptian. So uh, H-A-P-I, Hapai. This is Hapai. Um, here is, you know, since it's kind of hard to see it since you don't read Egyptian, uh, let me help you out. This is what Hapai would look like sketched out. Two things about Hapai that are important. If you'll notice, he's got a great big beer belly. And if you'll notice, he has, he has big breasts. 
Okay? The reason for that is Hapi was the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. The people worshipped Hapi because what would happen is every year annually that the Nile River would flood and when it flooded what it would do is it would bring all of the nutrients from all, all the way around the river and it would dump it in that area. So in the life of the, the Egyptians this was huge. And it was so huge because it guaranteed a good crop for the future. They were so dependent on this annual flooding. The whole culture and economy revolved around the annual flooding. I personally think that this event happens around that time because both the first two plagues are directed at gods who are related to the flooding of the Nile. And so Hapi is known as the god of fertility, the god who's going to allow things to blossom and to flourish. So, so think about this for a second. If you are an Egyptian and you worship Hapi, and all of a sudden now the river Nile turns to blood, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the temple of Hapi and you're going to make offerings and sacrifices and say, please, please, help us, help us, help us, help us. And nothing. And your God doesn't respond. But your God is the God of the Nile. He should respond. He's the God of the annual flooding. He should be able to fix this. Nothing. Why? God's God. And Hapi's not. What happens is uh, the fish die. Literally, the text says they're piled up on the bank. So I just want you to think about this for a second. You go home and you've got your little farm fish pond that you have worked on so hard that you don't tell anybody about because that's where all the big fish are. And you go home and every one of them is floating at the top. And it is a nice, hot summer day. And by the way, you worship the Nile. So it's kind of rocked your boat a little bit. So what happens is, Pharaoh doesn't let the people go. So the text goes on, um, and it says, Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Chapter 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Here's what it says. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your officials, on your people, and into the ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up to you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron to stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams of the cow and make frogs to come up to the land of Egypt. Okay, don't miss this. Let's say you're in this scenario. Let me tell you what your day looks like. You get up in the morning. You swing your feet over. You put your feet on the floor. Squish. You get frog out from between your toes. You make your way down for breakfast. And you notice frogs. They are everywhere. You go to make bread, which was a daily substance, and as you are kneading your bread, there are frogs in your dough. And you go to put it in the oven, 
And there are frogs in your oven. There are frogs everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And it is crazy. And Pharaoh, in all of his infinite wisdom, looks at Janus and Jambres and says, Can you do that? Yep. And God lets them do it. So if, it was, if they didn't have enough frogs at the beginning, they really even end up with even more frogs now. And it is crazy. It is insane. And now there are frogs everywhere. So, Mo, so Pharaoh calls Moses and he says, I need you to get rid of the frogs. Um, you've got to read this for yourself. But uh, notice what it says. <laughs> okay. You've got to read this. He goes to Moses and he says, Moses, I need to get rid of the frogs. And Moses says, when do you want me to do it? And you would say what? Now. You know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. Get rid of them tomorrow. And we'll talk about why in a second. Okay. And the Lord did what Moses asked, and frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They were piled into heaps. The land reeked of them. So not only do we have a weak, a weak old pile of dead fish everywhere on the bank, now we have piles all over the land of dead frogs rotting in the hot Egyptian world of Egypt. Boy, sign me up for some of this. Well, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses just as the Lord said. And they go, okay, you got to explain the frog thing. Here you go. This, uh, heck, H-E-Q-E-T, Hequit. Um, Hequit is a goddess of the birth, goddess of birth. She was also a fertility goddess. She was associated with the whole um, flooding of the Nile thing. Um, here's a picture, here's a, here's a caricature of her. Okay, this is what she looks like. Um, she's an ancient symbol of fertility. Um, what would happen is um, they would... The, the Egyptians actually believed in, in and I don't, I don't want to get into all this because I want you to learn about God, not about the Egyptians, but this helps put it in context. Uh, they believed in eight primordial gods, okay? And in the Egyptian culture, uh, four of them were represented by male deities and four of them actually were represented by, uh, four frogs represented the male deities, four snakes represented female de deities in the Egyptian culture. So frogs are a big deal. Um, so all of a sudden, it was kind of like, it's kind of like, and again, I don't want to take this too far. It's kind of like God said, you want to worship frogs? I'll give you all the frogs you can handle. I can give you more frogs than you can handle. To the point that you're so sick of what you're worshiping, you're actually saying, okay, we don't want any more of them. But they were considered, I mean, they were, this was a big part of their worship. I think that's why when they go to Pharaoh and they say, get rid of them, it was kind of like they were good luck symbols. And it's like, well, I don't, give us another day with them, please, before you get rid of all of them. And you look at it and you go, this is insane. Who would do this? Who would do this? There's a great lesson for us as we get into it. So this is where we have. So we have these two plagues, uh, and that's the only two we're going to talk about this morning because um, uh, I, want, I just want to pull, a stuff, pull some stuff out of this for us uh, before we get going today. So here we go. First thing. Boy, I tell you, this is kind of fun, actually. I kind of like this. I don't know, maybe it's an age thing, but... Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I got to put this down. Uh, but I'm going to use it again. Uh, here, here's, here's the thing, okay? And, and I think this is the, oh, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get that one down. Um, hello, kind of cute. Um, here, here's the first thing. Don't let the world intimidate you. What God asked of Moses was a big ask. And it would have been very easy for Moses to be overwhelmed with the Egyptian world. To be intimidated by it and say, I can't go in there. I can't go before Pharaoh. I, I can't walk through those towering doors. The gate. I can't do that. I mean, God, who am I to do that? And some of you, you're going into workplaces this week where it's incredibly intimidating for you to do what's right. You know, I mean, it's hard to say something because I know I should say something, but I don't want to say something because, you know, I mean, you know, I'm just, it's just too overwhelming. Everybody will pressure me. You don't think there was pressure for Moses to walk in before Pharaoh? You don't think that every step that he took towards that temple or that dwelling place of Pharaoh, you don't think for a moment that he just went rushing in there like it was no big deal? I mean, it was overwhelmingly intimidating. Everything about that was, was designed to make you feel incredibly small and their gods and their power to be incredibly big. Is that not the world we live in? Is that not the world that you go into every week when you go out into the world and all of a sudden the world wants to try to intimidate you and go, well, you're silly for believing that and push you down lower and lower and lower and go, don't say anything and don't do this and don't do that and don't do that and we don't want your kind and, and you're, old, you're one of them. Isn't that what we face? And yet there's an incredible boldness because Moses knows he's doing what God has called him to do. And I think there's a reminder for us that when you and I have that tendency to to, to we know God wants us to speak. We know God wants us to say something. We know God wants us to get involved. There's an incredible tendency for us to allow the, the, the world, the situation, the circumstances to intimidate us, and we back away from it. And I think it's a great tool Satan uses, and he could have very easily used it with Moses. But he doesn't. Second thing. Um, this is where I struggle a little bit. But, and I'll get to why in a second, but I, God is God. And there is coming a time when God is going to judge. And when God decides to judge and when God decides to show this world that he is God, it is not pretty. As you're going to see in the plagues, as God challenges and attacks their gods one after another, after another, after another, when, when God is done, there is very little left of Egypt. It is pretty much decimated. When God is done, there is very few questions about whether or not he is God. I know a lot of you, you look at what's happening in the world, particularly those of you who are older, and you look at what's happening in the world and you go, you know what, I, I just can't believe it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. I just wish God, Jesus would come back. And you're like John in, in, in the gospel of, or in the Revelation, in the book of Revelation, where you go, you know, even so, come Lord Jesus. And I have to be honest with you, I struggle with that prayer. Because I know what that prayer is going to mean. Do I want the Lord, and for those of you who don't know, you know, we believe that the next event on God's timetable is God comes back for his children. 
we call it the rapture. Some people call it the second coming. We can get into all of that stuff. But the bottom line is that's the next event. Here's what we believe is going to happen. God is going to show this world once and for all he is God. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to send a series of judgments, much like he did with Egypt, on the world to get people's attention and say, I'm God. And when he does, you should know it's going to be just like the story you're going to see ahead in the days in the weeks ahead. It is really ugly and it is not pretty. But when God comes to a point where God says it is now time for judgment, God doesn't. It was funny. My wife, you know, she's the kindergarten teacher. And so one year, one of the kids was she they have this like kindergarten orientation thing and they and they they come in and they meet her and um so one of these kids came in, and he had had a brother, I think, that was in her class. And they came in together. And, uh, you know, Jean, you know, you know, I'm Mrs. Thomas, and I'll be your kindergarten teacher. And, I'll, and her older, his older brother looked at him and goes, oh, by the way, you should know. She don't play. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know what? You need to know right up front, this is the way it is. She is no, 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 not going to be game. She's going she's gonna to call it like it is, Okay. Um, and it's great when you got that kind of reputation, you know, that, you know, okay, you know, I'll love you, but I don't play. Uh, but it's that, it's that idea. There's coming a time when God says, look, I don't play. Up until now, I have shown love and grace and mercy and offered all this, but I have now, just like he does with Egypt, I have now drawn a line. And when God draws that line, it is not a pretty picture. Read what he talks about in the book of Revelation is coming. So for me, do I want the Lord to come back? Yes, even so, come quickly, Lord. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to meet you, to meet my friends and my loved ones that have gone. I am, I am all ready. I am all in. But God, please, give us a little more time so that the world that of my friends and relatives here who don't know the Christ that I know, give me time to help explain it to them and reach them and give them an opportunity because I know that when you draw that line, You've drawn the line. And you go, I can't believe in a God that would, that would, that would be judgmental like that. No, no, no. Then you, here's what you need to understand. That God is a God of judgment. Make no mistake about it. And the reason that he sent Jesus to the cross is because he's a God of judgment. And on the cross, God judged your sin and mine. And on the cross, God said, I'm going to pour out my wrath and he who knew no sin is going to become sin for you and I am going to give you an opportunity to have his righteousness. But I do judge sin and he judged it at the cross. And if you decide to reject it, then you face God's judgment instead of God's love and mercy. And that is true for anyone. And, and he says here, he talks about this idea here, and this is what you see in this story, where God says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go one-on-one with the, with the Egyptian gods. So it's a judgment on the Egyptian gods, as you look at this, to get the attention of the, of the people, the Egyptians, and also it gets the attention of the children of Israel. Because, by the way, in the first two plagues, the children of Israel are surrounded by frogs and water that's turned to blood. You go, well, that don't seem right. No, you need to understand that sometimes when God judges, it affects innocent people. And sometimes when God deals with things, and I think there are times in this country that God has dealt with this country, it's affected a lot of innocent people. 
And God said, you know what, it's time for me to try to get somebody's attention here. Now, what you're going to find is God draws a line. And from that point on, the children of Israel, everything that happens in Egypt happens in Egypt, and the children of Israel, it doesn't. And that's an incredible lesson when we get to that. The last lesson is this, and, and, I, and I want to go back to um, Hequit, because I, I think she's just cool, first of all. Um, I don't know what it is about, but anyway. When you look at that, right or wrong, one of the thoughts in your head is, who in the world would worship that? Who in the world would go into a temple with those things surrounded by them and going, please help us have a child. Please have our crops come out good this year. Please give us, give us fertile, fertile animals so that, our, so that our herds can increase. And here, we're going to make an offering to you. And I'm going to do that every day for a year because I want you to bless my crops. I want you to bless our family. I want, want you to give us more children. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be dedicated and loyal to you. Anybody want to sign up for doing that with that thing? I wonder, maybe 100 years from now, somebody's preaching on a passage like this, and they're saying, you know what people did 100 years ago? And they throw a picture of a dollar bill up there. People worshiped this. People spent their entire life pursuing this. People spent their entire existence working for as much of this as they could get. Or maybe we put a, a, a title up there. And we go, people spent years working to get their plaque on a door. Or we talk about the things that people pursued so much that, they, that we've got to be honest, we've made gods out of. Oh, yeah, and you, and you know what? They would look as silly as this does. And I can't tell you, in my job, you know, I see people at the end of the journey and they look back and they go, I spent my life on this and it was so silly. And we talked about this in Sunday school. Live intentionally so that's not your story. Live in such a way that you go, you know what, I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask myself, what is it I'm really focused on? What is it that is really important? What, if I continue on the direction that I'm going right now, where will it end? And be honest about it. Because I think what happened is we are worshiping some things. Listen, you know, our culture, you could put, you could put sports figures up here. You could put musicians and bands up here. You know, the, the fact that we pay, we pay people to play at certain levels and we minimize the necessity kind of people like people in law enforcement, people nurses, doctors, people in, in hospitals, uh, hospice care people. I mean, we, we take those people and we go, okay, we're going to give you enough to get by. But you know who we're going to worship? You know who we're going to put on a pedestal? It's just as silly. Let's be honest with ourselves. And if we're not careful, that's what we're going to teach our kids. That's what we're going to teach our kids. That this is what's important. And when we look at it, you go, 
that's silly. Who would do that? And by the way, it's interesting. When God deals with this, you know what God does? God says, you want to worship frog? I'm going to give you a lot of it. In fact, you're going to see this when we get into the children. I don't know how long we're going to do this series, but if we get to the point with the children of Israel when they're going to complain, God, you know, they look at God, God says, okay, you want meat? I'm going to give it to you until you're so sick of it, you can't have any more of it. You don't want any more of it. And sometimes I think, I think sometimes one of the worst judgments God can do in our lives, one of the worst ways God can get our attention is go, you want to focus on that? I'm going to give that to you to the point that it becomes overwhelming to you that you just don't want it anymore. You go, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, God, give me all the money that I can have until I don't want it anymore. Look, read about people who win the lottery. And a majority of them, it does not like make their life better and it does not solve their problem. You go, no, 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 if God would just take care of it. No, 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 God's, God does things to to teach us things. God allows things for us to learn things. And I just want to challenge you to step back and go, okay, what am I worshiping? Is it Christ? Or is it the things that come with Christ? There's a difference. Because we want to be intentional in following Christ. And as those of you who have kids and as you raise your kids, you have to step back and ask yourself, my wife and I used to do, what, what is it that I want? You know, once a year, my wife and I would sit down and say, okay, what's our goal for our kids this year? And we tried to pick one thing. Now, there were a lot of things we could pick, but we just tried to focus on one thing for that year. You know, what is it you want, what is it you want to see? And be intentional about the things that we were. So when we came up against issues and it was like, well, we need to deal with this, we need to deal with this, we need to deal with this. It was like, okay, no, let's go back to the one thing and let's deal with that. That's our focus for this year. I just want to challenge you with this idea because I think if we're not careful, we start worshiping stuff. We don't think we're worshiping it, but the reality of it is it takes first place in our life. It takes first place in our energy, our efforts, our time, our money, and it's all going there. And all of a sudden we come to the end of our life and we go kind of like what we talked about in Sunday school. We've got this box of stuff that, that we filled with and, and there's nothing really in there of value. And so I just want to challenge you with this, because I think if we're not careful, you know, we look at this, we go, it's so silly. Why would you worship a frog? Why would you worship and put way up in your priority list some of the things that we do? You know, because I think sometimes it, we, can get, we can get just as silly. And so I want to challenge. So as we end this morning, here's my challenge. Don't allow the world to intimidate you when you're standing for your God. God will demonstrate his power when he needs to. And he may use you to do that. Be careful. Don't put anything before Christ. Follow him with your whole heart. Let's pray, Lord. Ah, your God. And Lord, we really have no comprehension of the power that you have. Lord, it's easy for us to get so caught up in the things of this world that we push you aside. Don't let us do that. It's real easy, Lord, as we look around to get intimidated by the things that we see and the people and the circumstances around us. And, Lord, we tend to forget 
that you're on the throne and that you can give us the power to do what we need to do and what you've called us to do. So help us. And Lord, we understand there is coming a day of judgment. But Lord, now is a time of mercy and grace and love. So will you help us this week to share that message of love and acceptance and grace to a world that desperately needs it? These things we ask in your name. Amen.